Future Design Podcast is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Please visit my website at fdpod.co. That's fdpod.co and sign up for my free newsletter that includes the monthly review of the latest four episodes, takeaways, books, and articles I've read to prepare for the show. Also, if you're listening to the show on Apple Podcast, please give a rating and a review so that more people can know about this show. Now that I got that out of the way, please enjoy this week's show. Yo, yo, yo. What if there's a way to perceive life outside of the realm of what we're accustomed to? Could you open that door? Some call this breaking free of the matrix or the psychedelic experience. Hi, this is Takatoshi Shibayama, the host of the Future Design Podcast. In this episode, I have Adam Aronovich, a researcher for the Center for Psychedelic Studies at the Imperial College, who talks to us about how psychedelics can allow us to look into our true individual self and reevaluate the way we view ourselves and the world around us. We have long been molded to a narrative of life that was created by others. Can we lift the veil to another possibility, one that is full of interconnectivity and harmony designed by us? Well, thank you, Adam, for being on our show. Welcome to the Future Design Podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. It's great to be here. This is a super fantastic topic that I always wanted to really pick up. Super fascinating studies that are being done since the 50s. You know, there's been a very brief stop of about 30 years, and now it's kind of come back again. So I would really want to talk to you about how this world of psychedelics are really coming back to this world again and what are the benefits for us. So before we dive into those things, uh, could you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Adam and uh, my field of inquiry is mental health. So basically I have been uh, looking into mental health for many years. My background is in psychology, cognitive science, neuroscience, uh, and more recently for my graduate studies, uh, I have been uh, looking more into the cultural aspects of mental health. So a field that is known as uh, medical anthropology, uh, cultural psychiatry, really, mm. which is how different cultures around the world experience, address, diagnose, and treat uh, mental distress and psychic suffering. So basically those experiences of human life, uh, yeah, that had to do more with the mind and the spirit. Great. When we did a, a pre-recording before, um, you talked about you're doing a lot of research with the Imperial College of, in London. And I know that through many articles that I've read that Johns Hopkins Imperial College have been in the forefront of research in this psychedelics. Uh, can you tell us about your involvement there? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I am uh, involved in a couple of really interesting research projects in collaboration with different uh, universities and research institutions. So I am looking specifically at one plant, or actually it is not one plant, but a combination of uh, two different plants that are indigenous to the Amazon rainforest. As some of you might have heard this, it's a word that has become fairly popular, uh, even in mainstream discourse. Uh, and this uh, is known as ayahuasca. Uh, so ayahuasca is not one plant, but actually a combination of two different plants. One of those plants is the actual plant, which it is called ayahuasca in the Quechua language, which is a language uh, that originates in the highlands of Peru and Bolivia and Chile. And ayahuasca is a vine uh, that contains uh, alkaloids uh, such as um, armine and harmaline. Uh, but that vine then is combined for the most part with another plant, uh, which is known in the Peruvian uh, lowlands as chacruna. Yeah, and chacruna has a very, very high concentration of uh, tryptamine that is named DMT. Uh, dimethyltryptamine, that is a highly psychoactive uh, psychedelic uh, molecule. 
Uh, so the thing with dimethyltryptamine or DMT is that it's not usually uh, available orally. So you can eat as much DMT as you want and it's never going to get mm. into the human brain because there's an enzyme in the stomach that takes that molecule apart. So this combination between the vine and this bush, uh, the chakruna bush, uh, creates this very sophisticated indigenous technology uh, that allows the dimethyltryptamine to actually be digested in the stomach and then cross the blood-brain barrier and reach our synapses. So basically, the, the, the vine itself contains this molecule that acts as an inhibitor for an enzyme that destroys the dimethyltryptamine. So oftentimes in the rainforest, we refer to this as a proper technology. And actually, this is not only a technology, but actually one of the biggest uh, mysteries in, in ethnobotany, which is a science. Uh, ethnobotany is a science that studies the traditional uses of different plants and trees and so on and so forth. Uh, and it is a mystery how indigenous people in the rainforest came up with this technology, because we estimate that there's anywhere between 140 to 150,000 different kinds of trees, plants, shrubs, uh, and so on in the Amazon basin. So from a mathematical perspective, if people were to engage in a trial and error process where they were just mixing different trees and different plants, but it's not only different trees and different plants, but actually different parts of different trees and different plants. So we're using a bark and we're mixing that with a leaf you know, like there's roots and there's seeds and there's many different botanical elements. Uh, actually, somebody did the math. I forget who it was, uh, but the combinatorical uh, process basically derived that if people were really engaged in a trial and error process over the course of many years of which plants to mix with each other, uh, it would have taken them trillions of years to come up with this, with this particular, um, you know, uh, mixture. So it is a mystery how, um, you know, like relatively epistemologic, I mean, from the perspective of science, at least, how relatively uh, unsophisticated uh, nations that work with pre-technological methods came up with this mixture of these different plants. Yeah, for um, yeah, sure. If you take into account the indigenous epistemologies, then it isn't such a mystery because people will straightforward say, well, it is not a trial and error process, but this is a gift that we were given by the spirits of the rainforest. It's a very different way of approaching things. Mm -hmm. mm, interesting. Well, definitely after the ice age, we had 20,000 years of this horror scene and this, surely there's been a lot of trial and errors that happened. Maybe it did come from the divine gods of the rainforest, but I guess, you know, these are t technologies are, I would say, you know, ethnological understandings of our nature and finding those things who are more in tune with nature than than us our modern homo sapiens like us so before we dive into the ayahuasca and the whole experience that we can get from it can you tell us what exactly are psychedelics because it's a very vague term it includes a lot of different types of uh, chemicals and different types of drugs where people are more uh, associated with uh, for the people who have never heard of psychedelics or never really researched about it, can you tell us what psychedelics are? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, it's a question also that I don't think has a very broad consensus about what exactly a psychedelic is. Uh, the term itself, I mean, psychedelic comes from the root words uh, psyche and delic which oftentimes is interpreted as meaning manifesting the mind or mind manifesting. So psychedelics are uh, understood to be uh, psychoactive substances that in certain ways uh, manifest different aspects of the human psyche that remain hidden or remain inaccessible uh, in our daily normal uh, consciousness, right? So we are used to one modality of awareness, or one modality of consciousness, consciousness which is the daily uh, which kind of is problem solving uh, consciousness, uh, you know, probably through evolution has been the one that has been the most adaptive for our survival. Uh, but there's many other ways of being in the world or experiencing the world. 
you know, just to give an example, even the dream state is a psychedelic state. You know, the dream state is a state that is very poorly understood. Uh, all of us or most of us uh, can recall our dreams and oftentimes they're very bizarre experiences. Uh, and depending on which culture we're from, we either tend to give uh, more attention or less attention to the importance of our dreams. Uh, in Western or Westernized cultures, which I'm including Singapore also in uh, this definition of Westernized cultures, uh, like uh, as, uh, you know, countries or cultures are more aligned with this rationalistic, materialistic uh, understanding of the world. We tend to devalue uh, dreams or not to pay much attention to dreams, uh, almost as if they were a byproduct of our mind uh, as we were sleeping. Uh, but this is just one example. And often, you know, there are other cultures in the world that actually value dreams much more, in which dreams are the space where we can actually access information and access wisdom. Uh, they're very relevant and important, both for us as individuals, but also for our communities. So psychedelics are uh, substances, and they can be, you know, different kinds. They can be either naturally occurring substances, such as uh, psilocybin that we find in magic mushrooms or the mescaline that we find in peyote or San Pedro cactuses, uh, the dimethyltryptamine that we find in ayahuasca, salvia divinorum that we find in uh, salvia plants in Mexico. Actually, in Southeast Asia, you do have uh, somewhat psychoactive. Uh, I mean, you do have mushrooms. That's, that's one thing that grows pretty much all over the world. Uh, in Southeast Asia, there's a plant from the coffee family, which is the same family as the chakruna plant that I was talking about earlier. Uh, in Southeast Asia, you have kratom, which is not precisely a classical psychedelic because it's more of a narcotic or more of a, it's more of an analgesic, but it can have slightly psychoactive substances. So psychoactive plants uh, occur naturally all over the world. Uh, and there's also other psychoactive or psychedelic uh, substances that are uh, synthesized in laboratories, so they're man-made, such as LSD, which is the most famous and common one, uh, lysergic acid, which actually it's interesting because even the history of LSD uh, originates in natural compounds. I mean, old Albert Hoffman, the, the Swiss scientist in uh, the mid-40s uh, synthesized LSD, was actually trying to uh, recreate a naturally occurring molecule, which is called LSA, uh, which happens in ergot, fungus, and in different uh, plants from the morning glory family. Uh, and there's other psychedelic substances that don't really have uh, an origin or a genesis in natural compounds, but are completely laboratory uh, made, such as, I mean, the main ones nowadays, the ones that are mostly well-known probably are the 2CB, 2C, 2CI family, uh, some people classify MDMA as a psychedelic. Uh, MDMA, just for, for, for those listeners who are not very aware of this uh, scene, then MDMA is active substance in the drug that is known as ecstasy. Uh, but MDMA, actually MDMA does have a natural origin. There's a plant called sassafras, which actually is a natural a source of MDMA or MDA. Um, yeah, molecules. Uh, so MDMA is one uh, drug or one, uh, you know, nowadays we tend to medicalize this a lot, so we call them medicines, but basically drug is also a valid term. Uh, if we take away the loaded uh, aspect of this drug uh, term that has been pathologized and demonized uh, for so long. But MDMA uh, it's not necessarily a psychedelic, but uh, more of an empathogen or entactogen, which are categories of drugs that describe those substances which increase human empathy and human sensitivity. Right? So MDMA is not necessarily the kind of substance that will uh, give you the so-called hallucinations or visions, but more it will really open up people uh, and take away all of those layers of defense mechanisms and barriers that oftentimes uh, become obstacles for authentic, vulnerable human communication. So MDMA is more in that category of empathogens or entactogens, really there are uh, molecules that are best suited for honest, uh, authentic communication uh, between people. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there's many ways in which the mind can manifest. The human consciousness obviously is the biggest mystery 
uh, still uh, science actually is very well defined in the exploration of what consciousness actually is. There aren't any really coherent or, or all-encompassing uh, convincing theories of human consciousness, but psychedelics provide an avenue to explore really like uh, more in depth and in breadth the complexity of the human experience and what does it mean for us to be self-conscious and self-reflective beings in this world. So if I had to resume, I guess I would say like psychedelics are those substances that allow us to shift from our normal daily awareness to other states of being or other states of knowing uh, to broaden the perspective through which we see and understand the world to really be able to uh, understand reality and understand complexity in a richer and uh, wholer or more whole uh, manner. Yeah, so my understanding from this is that we have a perception about this world and it's a very structured, very materialistic, very logical way that we perceive this world, maybe because of our education and how we need to function in human society. But if you take like a child, you know, I have a, I have toddlers and then I had, you know, uh, two, two boys. And when I look at them, when they were three, four years old, it seems like they're always tripping. You know, they, they see things completely different from what I see. They have imaginary friends and then they, they explain it to me so vividly as if they're, they exist. And that's also possible with the human mind. I guess we kind of shrink down all those possibilities that we see about the perception of the world down to a very logical way of looking at the world. So I guess these psychedelics kind of brings back all those possible realities and alter our way of uh, perceiving this world. Now, you, you talked about different types of uh, psychedelics. I mean, do, do you actually get a different experience from doing, let's say, ayahuasca to a, a strong form of DMT or psilocybin or LSD? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's there's qualitative and subjective differences in all of these uh, different substances. And by the way, I really like the way that you put this in terms of like psychedelics being that which allows us to go back to that childlike sense of wonder, uh, that uh, way of looking at the world as we were as if we were children, really. Uh, which is something that is really one of the most important uh, things that psychedelics can do for us, really to recover. Uh, I think Aldous Huxley, uh, you know, kind of one of the most paradigmatic uh, writers that ignited the first uh, psychedelic movement, said like, uh, you know, like cleansing the doors of perception. And that really is that, like seeing the world anew as if we were seeing everything for the first time. Uh, but yeah, I mean, to your question, yes, I think every substance, every plant has its unique qualities. Um, you know, and that can be understood from different levels of complexity, even just from uh, the chemical and neurological aspects of what different molecules, uh, how different molecules interact with our uh, brains and our, uh, you know, different neurological mechanisms. Uh, and again, if you want to, take like a more animistic perspective and animism by the way um, is what some anthropologists call the ontologies of different uh, traditional people and ontology is basically how we make sense of the world and how we make sense of reality and nowadays uh, for for many traditional societies and different traditional communities in the world uh, they are still to some extent animistic in the sense that anima, animistic comes from the word anima, uh, which means, uh, and we, we get that word from the, um, from the root source of breath or spirit. Uh, and we get different words such as animal or animated that originate from that sense. So it's like the divine breath or the animating uh, principle. So for animistic cultures, or animistic societies, uh, the world is understood to be very different than when we understand the world in materialistic, rationalistic societies. Uh, so for us, the world is pretty much made of atoms, right? And like mechanical interactions and kind of like Newtonian physics and so on. But for animistic cultures, which are most of the traditional cultures in the world, what we call indigenous cultures, um, the basic principles are not 
uh, matter or spirit, right? Everything is spirit. Everything is imbued with spirit. Uh, everything is spirit. So humans, we are spirits, but also animals and trees and plants and rocks and rain and, you know, like nature patterns and weather patterns. Everything is imbued with spirit. Mm. So spirit is the building blocks of everything and everything shares the same essence, which is the divine breath, right? Like this animating mm. principle. So when we work with ayahuasca or different plant-based psychedelics, which are originally or traditionally embedded within indigenous ontologies, they are understood to have their own, uh, you know, uh, agency, to be sentient, to, to be intelligent, to have needs and wants and to feel emotions. So ayahuasca oftentimes, you know, for example, is understood to be like the sentient spirit that is in interaction, in reciprocal, um, you know, interaction with the person who is uh, working with it. So it's just a different uh, way of understanding things. One of them is molecule base or brain base, and the other one is more of a metaphysical, spiritual uh, understanding that every sentient being, be it human or non-human, is communicating in some ways. Yeah, so ayahuasca, mushrooms, peyote, San Pedro, uh, they have spirits, they're sentient, they can communicate with us, they can give us information, they can provide us with different insights, they have their own agency, their own uh, motives, right, and so on and so forth. And again, I'm not, I'm not like saying this is how things are, either way, I think these are just two different ways of understanding complexity, there's many more. So these are just kind of like the two more prevalent ones, which one comes more from the scientific, rational, establishment and the other one comes from more of the traditional indigenous way of understanding uh, interactions. Yeah, sometimes I've heard uh, people say that maybe apes have evolved with psychedelics and our brain has evolved this way because these apes were using all these psychedelic mushrooms or whatever they found uh, and we made this massive leap from being an ape to a homo erectus or, you know, neuronthethals or whatever they, they we are because of these psychedelic experiences where, you know, animals, uh, obviously they are sentient and they're probably way more in tune with the na natures of, of this world, but we've made this gigantic leap because uh, we're able to now with these with the help of psychedelics, being able to perceive this world in a much different way than than animals. But maybe, maybe that's a different story from some other time. Uh, but and 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 now you you mentioned about this um, you know rational world, and obviously right now, as I mentioned earlier, that there's the there's a comeback of this psychedelics being used in med medical. Uh, therapy, people with depression, addiction, PTSD, and the likes. And how has this uh, psychedelics been uh, reviewed nowadays? And how far away are we to, well, let's take that back a bit. How does this psychedelic experience really help us with mental diseases? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And, you know, as you mentioned, um, yeah, I mean, one of the main drivers for what we're experiencing nowadays culturally, which is what we call the psychedelic renaissance, yeah, which is basically like this renewed interest in psychedelics that is coming not only from the underground or from the counterculture, but actually it's coming from the establishment, is due really because uh, of their uh, untapped potential to address and relieve uh, widespread human suffering, which really manifests nowadays mostly as these epidemics that we're experiencing all over the developed industrialized world uh, in, in the shape of uh, anxiety and depression and suicidality and different uh, expressions and manifestations of deep human distress. Uh, and psychedelics uh, can be very helpful for it for very different reasons. So I think like the main one that is being explored right now is still pretty much aligned with the mainstream of um, medical understanding of mental health, um, which is that psychedelics oftentimes can provide us with a way that we can really dive deep into the root source of those afflictions as opposed to just treating 
uh, the symptoms or the more superficial manifestations of those afflictions, right? So if you look at how Western biological psychiatry is uh, structured, basically you have an industry that is one-to-one aligned with a industrial capitalistic paradigm. Mm. So this can get tricky sometimes when it uh, comes to addressing human suffering because there's a clash of interests. On one hand, you have the economic interest of the industry, right? You have like the pharmaceutical industry and you have the medical establishment that are interested basically in making as much money as possible. And on the other hand, you have the needs of the people, which is like, wait, we want to heal, you know, we want to be cured, we want to feel better, we want to be happy. Um, So there is very little incentive from the side of the establishment to provide medicines that actually cure diseases or cure afflictions, because it's much more profitable for the establishment to treat symptoms. Because if you're treating symptoms, you're creating lifelong clients and if you're curing uh, diseases, then you're basically uh, getting them off the hook, right? Like you're not really giving them as clients anymore. So most, particularly in psychiatry, most of the treatments have been based on symptomatic treatment. I mean, this is not only the, this is not the only reason. There's other reasons that have to do more with the foundational assumptions of uh, biological psychiatry, which you know this would give us material for many different podcasts. Um, but to make this short or concise, uh, what psychedelics do is precisely the opposite, because what psychedelics do is that they, they don't really just uh, treat the symptoms or the superficial manifestations of those afflictions, but they take the person into a deep dive into the discovery of the deep roots of whatever is afflicting them. So it's not only about like, you know, like putting a band-aid over like a superficial wound, but actually like saying, hey, like this is the root wound. This is like the root source of this depression, this anxiety. Um, and this is what you need to address. And this has been uh, one of the main reasons why the establishment has been so uh, slow to adopt these uh, medicines or these treatments, because oftentimes the roots of these afflictions turn out not to be um, personal or physical, right? Like we have this narrative in, in Western medicine or in biological medicine that uh, depressed people are actually suffering from an imbalance of um, neurotransmitters in the brain. It's like, hey, like you don't have enough serotonin in your synapses, you're feeling very sad. Uh, even with anxiety, like, you know, like anxiety, oh, you're feeling like your brain is not working properly. There's something wrong with your biological constitution. So we're going to give you this drug that is going to balance out like these things, right? Uh, but when, when people eat mushrooms or when they do an ayahuasca experience, they may find, right, like different uh, things about their experience that give uh, explanations to why they're feeling in certain ways that don't necessarily align with this biological explanation. And oftentimes these insights may draw from social uh, reasons or cultural reasons, right? Like a person can be like, hey, actually like, you know, like I actually like my depression stems from the fact that I'm feeling very isolated because I don't have a community around me. Like I don't have like real connections with people because I'm working 20 hours a day, six days a week, and I don't really have time to do anything else. You know, like I live in a society that forces me to work 80 hours a week just to pay rent and get some food. So I don't really have time to nurture other aspects of my life. So I'm really feeling isolated and I'm feeling lonely and I'm feeling burnt out. And it's no wonder that I'm depressed actually, because there's nothing wrong with me. It's actually something wrong with the society that I live in that doesn't allow me to have a happy, fulfilling life if I'm not chasing my tail six days a week for so many hours, right? Uh, Or there can be other reasons. There can be environmental reasons, for example. You know, like it's no secret that we're going through really difficult times collectively in terms of existential challenges that we're facing as a human community and as a planet. Um, You know, like the, the existential risks that we're facing in terms of global warming and depletion of you know fish in the oceans and so on and so forth so sometimes people don't realize how much uh, these uh, things can have an impact in how we feel but 
you know, people are anxious. Like I'm anxious at the time. Like I, I, I suffer from anxiety. And for a long time, I didn't really understand why my anxiety was as strong as it was. I was like, you know, like I, I live a relatively comfortable life. I love my job. I love what I do. I don't work as many hours as other people do. You know, like I have a relatively uh, supportive group of friends and family. Why am I feeling so anxious, you know? And I had a few ayahuasca experiences where I was taken to this really painful journey of like realizing the extent of the damage that, you know, the human civilization is doing to the earth and like the suffering of the different sentient beings with whom we share, you know, this living environment and the dire situation of our ecosystems and so on. And I realized like I, I have like this existential dread living in me because I don't I don't see a way out of this predicament and this anxiety that I'm feeling that I you know I can like it's not only my individual personal anxiety it is an anxiety that is more globalized anxiety that all of us to some extent are part of because all of us are immersed in in, in this historical moment where we have to make collective choices that are going to determine whether uh, we survive another generation or not. I mean, these are very real things, you know? So that anxiety turns out, you know, is a real collective thing that is not only my own neural chemistry, you know, but it's more of a uh, collective intelligence uh, thing. So I think a lot of the, a lot of the wonderful uh, and potentially revolutionary things that psychedelics can offer us is particularly that realization that we're not isolated, that we're not islands, you know, disconnected from each other, that we're not uh, living in this solipsistic universe where only our internal uh, personal reality exists, but actually we are always interconnected, that um, we are dependent completely on each other, that we cannot subsist and we cannot be happy if everybody else is not relatively happy and healthy too. So psychedelics oftentimes give or can give rise to this experience of feeling part of something bigger, part of something that is beyond our own individual selves, which for most of us living in extremely uh, individualistic cultures can be something extremely revolutionary because some, most of us haven't experienced that in the day to day because our uh, culture and the, you know, like the dominant epistemologies and the dominant worldviews don't allow really for that realization to happen. We're more and more and more uh, kept in this atomized, isolated, alienated state that is very conducive to good uh, consumerist uh, cultures and so on and so forth. You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's the basis of consumerist culture. If we live in a society that is bent on us being good consumers and obedient workers, then that requires, a, you know, there's an erosion in our social connectedness that we're more isolated, more alienated, because then there's a void that is left that we need to fill with all of this useless crap that is being sold, you know, everywhere in the world, you know, different services that are uh, given to us to, to fill that existential void. But, you know, like that void is something that is left after our sense of belonging, after our sense of community, after our sense of being part of something bigger uh, is taken away from us. So, yeah, and I get like the main value or the main input in my experience and through the, re through the research that I've done, uh, the main value of psychedelics really is to give us that experience of interconnectedness, of interdependence, of being part of something bigger of understanding that as humans, we are social animals, and that is incredibly important for our health uh, to have healthy communities and healthy societies and to thrive uh, in a community with other people. And not only other human people, but other non-human people. You know, the rest of the sentient world around us, which we oftentimes just take for granted as objects to be exploited for our own needs, well, they're not. They're sentient beings with subjective experiences that are part of this uh, extended family of beings. Yeah, I totally agree. it. I mean, you know, in our modern society, we become more and more isolated from each other, right? I mean, if you think about, to think about maybe our parents' generation or a little bit before that, 
people lived within real local communities, people lived with their families, and now people are moving out to urban cities, and they go to these urban cities and these local communities, they don't know them because they're all from different places. So they're not really interested in creating a local community. All they care about is going to work, make money, and keep their family happy. And then we have all this technology that distracts us from interacting with each other. So we're more into our smartphones watching Netflix or social media. And then we're becoming more and more isolated, even within our own families. I've seen you know, families in restaurants and every single family members on their phone doing something, playing video games or whatever it is. And the more isolated we become, we're not even really noticing that. And then we're filling our void with all this materialistic junk that you actually mentioned. And the, the way that I, I understand from people who have psychedelic experiences is that it takes you back to where you're supposed to be with interwined with nature, interwined with people around you, uh, sentient beings and all that. And, and, I, and, and, and it's true, the fact that you know, this pharmaceutical world is always trying to numb or even kind of dissuade you from actually looking at the real problem and then just giving you something so that it will just, again, distract you from what your real symptoms, real root of the problem is. And, and I guess the psychedelics give you that experience of going back to what is that problem. So can you tell me a little bit more about your experience when you do it? You know, because a lot of people who don't do it think, oh, it's all rainbows and bursting of colors and unicorns and, and you know, the magic dragon coming and all that stuff, right? So can, can, can you tell us a little bit more about what exactly happens during this experience? I mean, that's a really good question. And also one that is impossible to answer because it's such a wide spectrum of possible experiences. Uh, and particularly with psychedelics such as ayahuasca or mushrooms, uh, which seem to be highly interactive with our subconscious minds. So experiences tend to be highly uh, variable and diverse depending on that interaction between the plant itself and the mind that is experiencing it. So like experiences can vary a lot, uh, but that's uh, kind of like experience that you describe of rainbows and unicorns, uh, even though it sounds really like the, uh, how do you say, like the prototypical uh, experience, that's very rare. And particularly when working with ayahuasca or mushrooms or things that really interact with people's minds. Uh, you know, like these experiences can go either way. They can be very blissful, they can be very uh, cartoonish, you know, depends on where you're at and what is it that you're seeking. And in the same token, they can be terrifying. They can be really horrific and terrifying. Uh, and this is what sometimes people call a bad trip. Except, you know, in the psychedelic world, or at least when, you know, people are more experienced in working with these substances for a while, we tend to say that this uh, they really aren't any bad trips, they're just difficult trips, they're difficult journeys. And oftentimes when people are having uh, bad trips, or what they call bad trips, because they're going through experiences that are really, really scary or difficult because they're facing content, intrapersonal content or psychic content that has been hidden or took away for very good reasons for a very long time and they haven't really been able to face and then uh, the psychedelic experience kind of like opens up or cracks open, you know, like that vault of like difficult memories or difficult uh, repressed content and brings it back uh, into our, you know, puts it like in front of us so we can actually uh, see it and we can actually work with it and we can actually say like, hey, like, you know, like this is, it's time uh, to actually face reality as it is and, you know, like work with this content and try to um you know like just heal you know and the only way of really healing i mean the the word the word heal is very interesting because this is actually maybe interesting for linguistic geeks or for english language uh, language geeks but the word heal shares an etymological root with the word whole mm. so to heal is literally to become whole so the way that uh, the psychedelic 
community or the psychedelic medicine community understand healing is precisely this way of becoming whole or reconnecting all those different aspects of who we are that through trauma and through social, cultural, environmental, um, you know, trauma or just personal trauma have become disconnected of who we are. Uh, so oftentimes, you know, like parts of ourselves become disconnected because of trauma don't just disappear in the ether. Uh, they just get repressed and pushed away in some dark part of our unconscious and subconscious minds. Uh, and we don't really have access anymore to those aspects of us because those are aspects of us that are very painful uh, that we disconnected from for a good reason, which is to protect our conscious selves and our developing selves from the pain that they entail. Uh, but in the long run, that's not really serving us because in the long run, that disconnection creates alienation uh, from our true inner essence. So these bad trips or these difficult trips, these difficult experiences oftentimes face, uh, you know, force us oftentimes to face uh, those parts of ourselves that have been alienated from us. And this is where people can get into like really difficult spots. Uh, and this is why, and this is something that I probably should say, you know, probably also because I imagine a lot of your audience are psychedelically naive and don't have much experience uh, when it comes to these experiences. It is very important, in particular in the in the beginning, if you're if you're uh, trying psychedelics for the first time or the first few times, it is very important that you do this with somebody that is experienced and somebody that is qualified to hold that space for you, because we, when and if, okay in and when, if and when uh, you have to face those difficult moments, it will be very valuable if you do have somebody that can hold that space with empathy, with care, with compassion, and with skills to really lead you into facing those aspects of yourself in a way that will be beneficial for you in the long run. Uh, so you can actually integrate those things in the, long, in the long run. So, you know, in a very basic sense, I guess, like the point is that the psychedelic experience uh, has many aspects. So the one that I've been focusing on so far is the one that has become more common uh, nowadays because of the medicalization and psychologization of psychedelics that is giving them kind of like a foot in the door to go mainstream, yeah? Because they're aligned with the medical system that we work with, they're aligned with, you know, the desire that we have in Western culture to face our own shadows and so on and so forth. I mean, they're not very far off from just mainstream psychology and psychiatry and so on and so forth. Uh, so, you know, the psychological aspect of self-knowledge in terms of like our subconscious and unconscious traumas and so on is very important, uh, but that's just one tiny aspect of it. Obviously, the other aspects, which in my experience tend to be even more interesting than the psychological ones, are the ones that are and will forever probably remain very mysterious, which are the metaphysical ones, the ontological ones, the epistemic ones, okay? Uh, so just to uh, explain difficult words for those of you who are not necessarily scientists, uh, ontology relates to that field of inquiry, which, uh, you know, like dwells on what is the world, uh, what is the reality of the world, or what is the world made of? So what is the ultimate basic foundation of this world as ontology? And epistemic is uh, the inquiry into knowledge. How do we know what we know? How do we know or how do we uh, gain knowledge about the world? So when I talk about ontological or epistemic uh, issues, I remember like these very basic aspects of what is the world made of and how do we know what we know about the world, right? Mm. So for me, the most important and interesting aspects of psychedelics have always been uh, ontic or ontological and epistemic, which is really like they get us to question the most basic assumptions that we have about this world, right? Like they get us to question Hey, like you know, like what is this world actually? Or how do how do how how do I know? Or am I really sure that my opinions or my theories or my beliefs are actually grounded in some solid epistemic processes? And often, more often than not, we will find that they're not, which is the best thing that we can ever hope for, right? Like say, like hey, like everything that you think that you know about the world and all of your beliefs 
are actually wrong. So you have to think a little bit better. You have to think a little bit deeper. And hey, like you have all of these different, you know, like input, like sensorial, perceptive, you know, insights that you can try to rethink your own uh, cosmology and your own ontology and have your own understanding of the world from a more, from a broader perspective, now that you have like this different um, way of looking at things. So, you know, and this is very useful for religious people because it will get them to question the validity of their religious uh, beliefs. And this is very good for uh, rational, materialistic, scientific people because it will get them to question the validity of their materialistic, scientific, rational beliefs, you know? So it's just, I guess like the main thing for me that psychedelics can offer is epistemic and intellectual humility. Just that realization that everything that we take for granted or everything that we might be sure of is actually uh, not very epistemically grounded. And that, you know, like at most we have opinions and that those opinions are not really grounded on anything solid. Uh, and that, you know, it's just important to always keep this skeptical approach of questioning reality and questioning our own beliefs and questioning our own thought process and questioning all of the different institutional, uh, you know, uh, structures that are given to us oftentimes as if they were the ultimate truth, but actually they aren't. So, you know, just for people to be open to the possibility that everything that they know is wrong and <laughs> that, you know, it's interesting to always question, you know, the fundamental assumptions in which we build and construct uh, our uh, beliefs and opinions. I think that's for me like the most important thing. Yeah, and I think that's the exact reason why this use in the medical scene is probably you know years ahead because there are probably not that many people or doctors can administer this and take them through this journey and because you know they themselves have to be very well experienced in this to do this right. So, so I guess when you do it in the the rainforest and Amazon, the shamans are very experienced in this and they can take you through this whole journey. Can you tell us about how they, they, they take you, they, they guide you through this and how they help you integrate this with your life? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so I, I, I should clarify that uh, in the place that I work, which, by the way, uh, for our listeners, the place that I work with Rainforest is called uh, the Temple of the Way of Light. And you can find us online in our website, which is templeoftheofwayoflight.org. Uh, at the moment, we aren't operating because of the pandemic, uh, but we are expected to open again uh, next March, and we're expecting and happy to receive all of you. Actually, I would be very happy to get more people from Southeast Asia. Uh, it's one of the regions of the world that we don't often get visitors to the Amazon. Uh, yeah, so at the Temple of the Way of Light, we, we work exclusively with healers from uh, Amazonian tribe or Amazonian nation, which uh, are known as the Shipibo. So that's Shipibo. Uh, the Shipibo are one out of many different dozens of Amazonian cultures that thrive in the Peruvian uh, rainforest. Uh, and the Shipibo nowadays, they have become uh, sort of a referent uh, for ayahuasca work throughout the world for different reasons. They become very well known as experts in um, working with ayahuasca. And the main methodology that they have in working with ayahuasca is uh, sonic. So they work a lot through sound. Mm -hmm. They have this technology, which they call Icaros. The Icaros is basically a way of singing or a way of uh, articulating sonic landscapes through the vocal cords, uh, through the uh, physical properties of frequency and vibration. Uh, that are very skilled at taking a person into a very particular state of mind through their song. Mm -hmm. So when a person is under the influence of ayahuasca, right, which is a very powerful <laughs> uh, psychedelic plant on itself, it is fairly easy to get lost into confusion and like the internal landscape of whatever is happening, uh, cognitive loops. 
Bodhisattva healers in their own language. Obviously, they're not called healers. In their own language, they're called uh, Unaya or Unania, which derives from the root word Uni, which in the Shipibo language uh, refers both to ayahuasca itself, but it's also the word that they use to refer to uh, wisdom. Mm. wisdom or knowledge so the word for ayahuasca and the word for knowledge is the same word so the unaya are the people that work with ayahuasca and the unaya are those who know or those who are wise in the use of ayahuasca uh, and again the main tool that they have to help other people navigate the ayahuasca experience is the song is the ikaro uh, the sonic uh, guide right like this frequency and vibration that is very difficult maybe for people who are not extremely sensitive to sound but when you are in this expanded state with this extremely sensitive and extremely open state with the help of ayahuasca uh, the ikaro has a very powerful effect on your experience or my experience is my personal experience mm. uh, and again it depends on the skill of the person it depends on the personal resonance of the person in front of you uh, but music sound, like the sonoric aspect of it, is the way that it basically serves as a steering wheel with which they guide the person in front of them to different uh, crevices of their subjective experience. Mm -hmm. uh, the thing about the Icaro tour is that they, they're not singing songs that they learn by heart. They're not repeating some mantra, as it were. But actually, the Icaros are... Uh, temporarily bound pieces of art that are rooted in immediacy, right? So every Ikaro is personal. Every Ikaro is, uh, you know, like unique in the sense that it is only happening for you in that particular moment. And in that Ikaro, they are basically uh, speaking the words that are describing both the things that they are seeing in your energetic body, but also what they are doing to you, you know, through their input of the vibrational frequency in rearranging and reshaping the energetic patterns in the energetic body of the person in front of them. Now, this is something that it needs to be experienced, obviously, to be understood, because when I'm speaking this without the context of having that personal experience, it may sound a little bit like a woo-woo thing. Uh, and again, I mean, I'm not saying like this is like the science behind it. I mean, there's a lot of different symbolic things that can explain, you know, like why people feel better after an Icaro. I mean, the, the, the power of symbols, the interpersonal care, the symbolic aspect of a person with shamanic attire and the authority that that confides in them. And there's many aspects that obviously contribute to potentiate the experience through the placebo effect and through a enhanced meaning effect. Uh, but it's also true that that doesn't account for the whole of it. There's also something else that cannot be explained uh, in symbolic terms. It has to do more with the energetic uh, aspect of the sonic vibration and frequency uh, which again, I mean, many people that are listening from uh, from Indian cultures or from Valley cultures are more acquainted with like the practices of uh, mantra chanting, for example, can relate to. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the Ikaro is something that is very unique to South American traditional cultures. That is one of the ways in which they navigate this experience through through sound. Yeah, yeah that's that's amazing. I mean. I guess you really have to experience this to really understand what you're talking about because, you know, I guess during that time, a lot of people are probably having very different experiences. Some might be, you know, going through more emotional baggage and some people might be having a very trippy moment where they're seeing, you know, different things that, you know, um, that really trying to go through, you know, different perspectives of life. So this music would bind everybody together and take them through a similar journey. Is that is that what's happening? Well, I mean, it, like, it won't, like everybody in the same environment is not going to have the same experience. It's mm -hmm. going to be very personal. And again, this is what I meant before when I said that the experience is, a, is an interplay or, or an interaction between the person that is singing, the person that is in front of you, the substance itself or the plant itself, and then the mind that is experiencing it 
it can be that the same song in the same environment is going to have a radical uh, different experience for everybody involved. So it's very difficult to generalize. Yeah, it's very personal in, in many senses too. I see. And I heard the shamans also do take ayahuasca at the same time or in different moments. I heard even like the shaman might even do ayahuasca and the people who are there don't even take it. And she takes you through her journey or something like that. So I heard there's many ways that uh, these rituals are being taken place. Yeah, I mean, this is a traditional way of working in the Amazon. Um, for the most part, the Shipibo, for example, and many other traditional cultures, um, ayahuasca is meant only for the healers. The patients don't take it, and the patients don't need to be in that uh, non-ordinary state of awareness in order for them to heal. It is more for the healers to be able to diagnose and see the thing that you need to see in the energetic body of the patients in that heightened or non-ordinary state of awareness, uh, this design where both the healer and the patients drink ayahuasca is something that is very new, relatively, uh, that emerged from the Western interest in these practices. So it is only when Western people, Westernized cultures started uh, going to the Amazon and discovering ayahuasca that we also, uh, you know, to some extent change the existing model to incorporate uh, that also the patients uh, drink the substance itself. So traditionally, for many hundreds of years and throughout Amazonia, it was the healers uh, exclusively who drank the, the drink, yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I heard that also, it's, you know, psychedelics is not really for everybody. You know, maybe some people are, are kind of, you know, not prepared, not just mentally, but like chemically, they're not prepared to get into this experience. I mean, is there a word of advice for people who are really interested, but maybe not the right people uh, to be doing this? Yeah, I mean, of course, there's there's always some risk factors. I mean, psychedelics, and this is something that is very important to, to state. I mean, psychedelics, you can think about, you can think of it, I mean, it's, it's never going to be a risk-free, uh, experience. Yeah, there's always going to be some risks involved. There's many ways in which we can minimize those risks almost to none, so we can make sure that whoever is engaging uh, will be uh, having a very positive and life-affirming experience, but always, obviously there's always uh, exceptions. So one of the things that we do identify, for example, uh, and particularly with ayahuasca, and this is not necessarily true for all psychedelics, but mostly for ayahuasca, is that people who have been uh, medicated through psychiatric medications, uh, they do need to first be weaned off of these medications. And this is for different reasons. The main one being, uh, particularly with ayahuasca, ayahuasca, as I said before, is a mixture of two different uh, plants which contain different molecules. One of these molecules is the harmin, the harmalin, which are inhibitors of monoamine esterase, which is a molecule, is an enzyme that uh, takes away uh, different tryptamines in our stomach, including dimethyltryptamine. Uh, so the mechanism of action of many drugs that are prescribed to people who are suffering from depression, what uh, are known as SSRIs, uh, or even like an older generation uh, antidepressives that work in the same mechanism of action as monoamine uh, inhibitors. Um, when combined, they can have um, negative uh, outcomes. Yeah, they're, they're, they can be, and again, this, 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 we don't have very solid empirical evidence, but theoretically, uh, we know enough to advise not to mix ayahuasca with antidepressive medications and probably also other uh, psychiatric uh, medicaments. So most people that work with psychedelics in a responsible manner will ask the clients to uh, have a few months uh, window or the cleaning of, of psychiatric medication. So this is one thing to take into account. And also another thing that I want to stress, uh, if somebody do, does feel a call to try out psychedelics in a responsible environment with responsible caretakers, uh, and you do need to come off psychiatric medication, it is always good sense to do that uh, in 
uh, with advice from your uh, doctors. So, you know, like go to your, to your psychiatrist, go to your psychologist and tell them like, hey, like I would like to go come off my meds. Can we come up with a, a plan together that will make this uh, the most uh, safe and beneficial for us? Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. And the other thing also like, there is there is a school of thought within psychedelic uh, community that advises also that people who have had uh, or experienced uh, psychotic episodes in their lives to abstain from uh, psychedelics, as psychedelics can, of not often, but they can or they could potentially. Um, catalyze uh, another psychotic episode. So it's just people that have, di- have been diagnosed in the past uh, with different psychotic disorders, such as schizophrenia, uh, to some extent, uh, manic depressive uh, or bipolar depression. Uh, and again, I mean, this is not a very broad consensus, but it is kind of like the mainstream consensus is that anybody that has had psychotic episodes in the past should be particularly careful with engaging with psychedelics. Uh, some people even would go further than that and also look at uh, the different, um, you know, risk factors for psychosis, which have to do with genetics too. Um, <clears throat> if a person knows that, you know, like somebody in their immediate family, whether they're brothers and sisters, mother or father, uh, have been diagnosed with schizophrenia or any other psychotic diagnosis, then, uh, you know, they they can be they can be at a relatively higher risk of having a, uh, you know, an experience that could induce a psychedelically induced psychotic episode. Uh, but again, I mean, this is a very broad topic that also needs to be taken with a grain of salt. I mean, the whole construct of psychotic disorders and psychosis and schizophrenia and all of these things uh, is something that deserves a lot of space to be discussed and deconstructed because it isn't as straightforward as most uh, psychiatrists would like us uh, to believe. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but just, just just to be on the safe side, if anybody does have a history of psychotic disorders or they are currently being medicated for uh, depression, anxiety, and so on and so forth, then it does make sense that they consult with an expert before engaging in psychedelic adventures. Awesome. Yeah. That's really important to know. And just just before we uh, finish off, what are can you tell us what are the people of the Amazon who take ayahuasca tell us about the cosmic consciousness that they have obtained? What do they talk about? Well, that, I mean, that's a, that's a huge question. <laughs> uh, and it's one that is very difficult to answer because there isn't really like, uh, you know, like, like, like sometimes because these things are so intermingled with each other, people tend to conflate different wisdom traditions. So, for example, you know, like most people in, in, in alternative spirituality or the New Age movement and so on and so forth are more familiar with uh, Oriental philosophies, right? Like, like yoga has become very popular yeah. and there's a lot of attention that is being given to like Indian sages and, you know, like Oriental wisdom and Confucian, Taoism and so on and so forth. Um, Amazonian cultures are very far from from feeding into that archetype of a wisdom tradition in the sense that we imagine uh, Oriental cultures to be like. So, you know, for the most part, like Amazonian shamans are not fitting that archetype of the wise person or the sage that can give you like life advice and so on and so Mm. forth. I mean, they're extremely skilled technicians in the medical tradition that they're a part of, but they are by no means uh, sages or wise people in the sense that we imagine them to be. And that's not to say that they're not wise in their own way or that they they're not have like their own uh, worldview, you know, and so on and so forth. But, uh, you know, one of the main problems actually happens when, you know, like we in our naive uh, imagination, imagine these people to be something that they aren't. Uh, but still, you know, like as descendants from these Amazonian cultures or these Amazonian traditions, they do, they are heirs to a very particular cosmology or a very particular mythology that understands the world in a very particular way. Uh, and I think like the most important or the main aspect of the wisdom that they do bring uh, to us or the wisdom that Amazonian uh, 
you know traditions can offer to to our modern world has to do in the emphasis that they have on the principles of reciprocity and harmony and balance so amazonian amazonian cosmologies amazonian you know worldviews are based on uh seeing the world not as a collection of objects mm -hmm. to be exploited for human gain, but seeing the world as the communion of subjects, mm -hmm. a big family of sentience, of intentionality, of agency, in which humans are just one part of, uh, but we aren't as, you know, like in the Western worldview, the human humankind, uh, we're kind of like the masters of the rest of the world, and it is our divine right to exploit and plunder everything else for the sake of our own needs in Amazonian cultures that would be considered pathological mm -hmm. because humans are just one aspect of a much broader network of interdependent, reciprocal, harmonious and balanced relationships between people, human people and non-human people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when Western people come to the rainforest, oftentimes, I mean, not all of us, obviously, but like the main mindset would be like, oh, like, you know, like this is a beautiful patch of rainforest. I wonder how much oil is underneath that forest. Or I wonder how much timber, how much wood can I extract from that patch of trees? Or I wonder how much gold and silver and iron can we extract from those mines in those mountains? And so everything is very utilitarian. Everything is very extractive. Mm -hmm. Everything we see as resources to be exploited for our own gain. And Amazonian people, uh, you know, they just don't see the world in that way because everything is recipro reciprocal and harmonious. And human people and tree people and bird people and the river people and the fish people uh, and, you know, like the wild boar people and the crocodile. I mean, everybody is standing on equal ground and everybody has the same divine right to exist in that environment and thrive in their particular ways. So most of the attention is given in not how to dominate and exploit the environment, but actually how to live in a reciprocal, harmonious and balanced way with all of the other sentient beings, which I think is the one thing that actually can save humankind from imminent extinction mm. in, the la in the next few decades that indigenous communities in the Amazon uh, you know, can teach us and definitely have a lot of input to give us in how to live paralyzed in harmony with the environment and how to prevent uh, engaging in self-terminating behaviors such as the one that neoliberal capitalism is driving us towards. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, this is a very awesome message to leave off and finish off the episode. So thank you so much for your time. And we definitely need to do a second version of this. Maybe we could talk about different things about What's, yeah. what, what we should be challenging in this world uh, through the lens of what you've experienced uh, for this society. So let's do that again. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. If you had enjoyed or disliked the show, please let me know in the comment section. I can only improve or add value to you through your voices. If there are any topics that you'd like me to pick up, please let me know in the comment section as well. I'd love to start chatting with you. And if you'd like to continue listening to the show, please subscribe. Thank you.